Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley square off in dueling CNN town hall forums. Democrats on the House Oversight Committee go after President Trump. A federal appeals court overrules Biden's latest attempt to push abortion. The Biden doom and gloom tour makes a stop in South Carolina. And Lisa Van Riper from South Carolina Citizens for Life will join me for an interview. I hope you're ready for another day to crank it up. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for uh, joining us for live on Facebook, live on YouTube this morning. We'll be here for, oh, 45, 50 minutes or so. Got a lot to do, plenty of things to talk about. And it's backbatting day, which is a great day. It means it's kind of at the end of the week. We're heading into the weekend. Pat yourself on the back. Congratulate yourself for another successful week, hopefully. All right. Um, I want to start out this morning by uh, talking about something I'm not going to talk about. And um, I know that sounds kind of weird, but what the reason that I think I need to explain is because everybody's talking about Jeffrey Epstein and the list that's been released and um, all the uh, names, the famous people from Hollywood, the people from the from Saudi Arabia, the people from um, just everywhere that are showing up on this list. And, of course, Bill Clinton is one of the ones that's the most prominent, and there are a lot of things being said about what he said uh, to somebody supposedly that's connected to Jeffrey Epstein and the fact that uh, they show up on all these court documents that are being litigated at the moment. And I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this. I, I went back and I, I read what I could find on the information. And, and this is the thing that I noticed. Every time I would read somebody's name, Right after that, it would say, now, this person has not been accused of any wrongdoing. We're telling you this person's name because it's on this list, but they haven't been accused of any wrongdoing. And guilt by association is not one of my favorite things. Um, I don't think it's a, a Christian thing. Um, I think it's a way to paint people that we don't particularly like in a bad light simply because they've been associated with somebody that has, that's done some pretty bad things. I mean, obviously, Jeffrey Epstein's horrible um, with sex trafficking and all the things that he's been involved in and was paying his debt to society when he apparently committed suicide. Now, whether or not you believe that, I mean, there are a lot of people that don't believe he committed suicide, that somebody got into jail and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, for me, on this information that's coming out now is until somebody links these people to something other than their name got mentioned in a court document, um, I just don't think it warrants spending a whole lot of time talking about it because it feels like, at least to me, that the only reason that I would be doing that is because it would be people on the list that I don't particularly care for or I disagree with their uh, worldview or the way that they approach things. And it would be a way for me to somehow bring information that could be embarrassing. And I just... Uh, that's not my thing. I don't. I don't think that equates with truth and politics and culture. I think when there's something to say about it, when something significant is revealed, and these documents are going to keep 
being opened. And there may be some things in the future that come out that we will need to talk about, that you'll need to know. Uh, but right now, just knowing the names and then reading the fact that, and now, by the way, uh, this, this person hasn't been accused of doing anything wrong. I just don't find that as good ground to have much of a conversation, at least, at least not here. Uh, all right, it's always a good day to protect innocent human life. South Carolina Citizens for Life is, as you know, a nonprofit single-issue right-to-life organization devoted to restoring legal protection to the unborn and to protecting innocent human life by eliminating abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia from our society. And this week, today, tonight, it's we've been talking about it for <clears throat> over a month now, and it's finally here, South Carolina Citizens for Life, is holding their 50th Jubilee celebration in Columbia. We're going to be talking with Lisa Van Riper, who is president of South Carolina Citizens for Life, and uh, she's going to be calling in about 8 o'clock this morning. We're going to talk to her about the event that's scheduled for this evening and also for tomorrow. The Proudly Pro-Life Dinner is tonight, and, of course, tomorrow is the Proudly Pro-Life March and Rally at the South Carolina State House. Uh, South Carolina Citizens for Life is welcoming Seth Dillon, who's the CEO of the Babylon Bee, and will be the guest speaker for tonight's event at the Columbia Metropolitan Convention Center on Lincoln Street in Columbia. I got to tell you, I'm uh, excited about uh, Seth Dillon being in South Carolina and looking forward to hearing him tonight. Check in begins at five o'clock. Doors open at six with a dinner served at six thirty, and then tomorrow the march and rally begins as always at eleven a.m. with a march from the USC Russell House on Green Street and ends with the rally on the steps of the State House beginning at noon tomorrow. I'll be there tomorrow. I know it's supposed to rain. I, I don't think the weather's going to be great, uh, but we sally forth. We will carry on. So uh, please join us. It's very important that, that political leaders in South Carolina, that people that make the decisions about our laws, about whether we're going to protect life or whether we're going to defend life, I mean, they need to know that South Carolina is a proudly pro-life state, and we have a lot of people who still care about this issue, even though the debate has been transformed um, since Roe versus Wade has been overturned. It's been transferred, I should say, to the states where we get to make the decision. So it's all that much more important that we're present when we have the opportunity. Uh, for more information, you can text SC Life to 50457. That's uh, SC Life to 50457, or go to sclife.org. Now, I think there's still an opportunity. I, I can't guarantee you uh, that tickets are still available, but I'm guessing that they are uh, because it, you know, you, you, it's a much larger venue than they've been, than South Carolina Citizens for Life has had before. Um, and so I know that as of yesterday, at least there were a couple of spots available at a couple of tables. So um, in any event, there's still time. If you'd like to come out tonight, here's Seth Dillon, and come tomorrow. There's no no charge. Tickets you need to purchase tonight, but tomorrow uh, it's just a matter of uh, coming and being part of the rally. So we hope that you will do that. All right, moving on this morning because we have several stories that we need to get to. And as I said, we're looking forward to talking to Lisa Van Riper coming up this morning at 8 o'clock. Democrats are trying to rerun discredited charges against President Trump. And here's the story. If you didn't hear this yesterday, it just this is a fresh story. There's going to be a lot more that we'll say about it next week because more details are going to be coming out. But yesterday, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee released a report that documents millions of dollars worth of payments from foreign governments to Trump-owned businesses. 
Now, let, let me just stop and say, these businesses that Trump owns uh, and manages, and by the way, that he turned over the management of to uh, his family when he became president, he, he divested himself in the sense that he didn't make any, he was not making decisions on what would be, how the businesses would be run. He turned all that over to his family while he was president. These businesses have been doing co- business with foreign companies for years before Donald Trump got into politics. I think the bank that they mentioned from China, which is mentioned over and over, is how much money they've invested. That goes all that goes back years. I think it was as, as much as twenty years, uh, where there's been a relationship between that particular bank and and the and Trump businesses, where the bank has either um, uh, in, invested money or or I, I'm not even sure what the relationship is, but they've. They, and for sure, they've had people stay at Trump properties. And Democrats are now trying to turn this into some kind of uh, emoluments clause violation, which basically says that a president can't benefit financially while he's in office from his businesses, uh, particularly from, well, from overseas businesses, from foreign investors or foreign assets. But again, th- this is... The president was not directly associated. He had turned over his um, control of, of of the Trump business to his family, and it's they're talking about eight million dollars spent at Trump properties, specifically in Las Vegas, New York, and Washington, uh, Washington D.C. The money came from twenty countries, with most of it coming from China and Saudi Arabia. Both of those are countries which have no doubt done business with the, and, and this would be true, I, I would imagine that other members of Congress, senators, um, a lot of people that you could name or would think about have been, have businesses that have dealings with foreign governments and not because of any kind of influence that they're trying to get, but it's just the the daily operation of an international business, which Trump's business interests are international. Um, Representative Jamie Raskin, the ranking Democrat on the committee, claims that Trump violated the Constitution by accepting millions of dollars through his businesses from some of the most corrupt countries on earth. Well, look, anybody that's doing business in the international world is doing business with, com- with businesses with countries that are corrupt. So this is, this is an overblown statement. This is Democrats trying to do a tit for tat. They're trying to go for um, since Biden, and which President Biden doesn't have businesses that are um, international in scope, uh, he has a son who is involved in business transactions that most of which can be linked back to President Biden and President Biden's influence. And of course, that that's the reason all this is coming out. The, the committee claims that the actual number here, uh, the actual amount of money that uh, Trump could have gotten from these companies could be much higher because they only looked at information from former Trump accounting firm Maziers that only covered four of his properties while Trump was president. Um, if they sound, if these accusations sound vaguely familiar, it's because the very same accusations were raised while Trump was president. Uh, they were litigated near the end of his presidency when a group called Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington filed a lawsuit claiming Trump violated the emoluments clause at that time. Now, 
This group is supposed to be a nonpartisan group, but they've got a history of animus and an anti-Trump mentality. They're funded by a lot of progressives. Uh, George Soros gives them a lot of money. And this is the same group, by the way, that filed a suit that successfully so far got Trump kicked off the Colorado ballot. So the case before ended up at the United States Supreme Court. Lower courts had ruled against Trump at that point saying foreign officials staying at Trump properties was a violation of the emoluments clause. But since the case didn't make it to the Supreme Court until Trump was about to leave office, the Justice Department considered the case to be moot. So the Supreme Court, they, they, uh, they did toss out the lower court's ruling, but they didn't issue a ruling on the question. So technically, the question is still open. And this is just another... I mean, the, the, the Democrats have nothing when it comes to touting their own policies. They can't talk about immigration because immigration is a disaster. They can't talk about the economy because the American people realize that even though they've been told that the economy's good and we should be happy about it, we're being told that by the media, by progressives, and in, in the well, that's the same thing. But in, but the media, progressives, let I mean, Democrat legislators, they're all running around telling us the White House how great the economy is, and people know that it's not true because they live and work in the economy. They don't just talk about it every day. And so the, the, the Democrats have nothing. I mean, they can't talk about military success because that turns back to Afghanistan. Um, they, they, there's almost nothing that the White House can come forward and brag about when it comes to President Biden. So the entire campaign against President Trump is going to be attacks. That's what they believe they're going to have to do. They're going to have to win the 2024 presidency. If Biden is going to win it, he's going to have to win it by attacking President Trump. That's why we're going to talk about this doom and gloom tour that President Biden is on. Um, we, we're going to we'll, we'll delve into that and talk about why he's going, where he's going, and what he intends to do and what this campaign is going to look like. Now, I'm hopeful that the American people are not going to be swayed by a constant barrage against President Trump and against and, and by President by Biden accusing him of being the greatest threat to democracy of of, of the century. I mean, and of course, he's getting help. He's getting help from the likes of Liz Cheney. He's getting help from the likes of of a possibly a third party can, uh, candidate that would um, emerge that would pretty much take up the same refrain and not talk about the issues, but talk about Trump himself being a threat. And every time this happens, it increases his lead among Republicans. I mean, I, the, uh, why, why they can't, uh, the Democrats don't understand this. Uh, there are two sides to that story. One side says the Democrats do understand it. They want to run against Trump because they think they can beat him. They're afraid to run against Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or any of, of, or, of either of those because they think that, um, that Biden would have a tougher time running against them in a general election. Now, is any of that true? Well, polling indicates that Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, either one of them, in polling, to, if the election were held today and the polling held, that both of them would defeat President Biden. Trump's margin of victory over Biden is much more narrow. Yes, Trump's up by two and a half to three to four percent in polling over Biden at this point. But with as unpopular as Biden is, 
Trump's lead really should match Haley's or DeSantis' lead. I mean, that does point to a problem that the Trump campaign is going to have to overcome. And you may say, well, wait a minute, it's a problem that he's leading? No, it's a problem that his lead in the polls is attached to the margin of error. And the margin of error, when you get within the margin of error, you're basically an, in a dead heat. And President Trump should be, even with everything that's going on uh, with President Biden, Trump should be leading by a larger percentage. That, that's what a lot of people are concerned about. So there, there are those who say that the Democrats want this. They, they want Trump to be the nominee. I, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, I don't, I, I think they understand that, that a lot of Republicans who maybe were less enthusiastic in 2020 are going to be much more ready to vote or to go out and support President Trump um, in 2024 when the, as this election unfolds. So I'm, I'm not sure I buy into to that whole philosophy that the, that where people are saying, well, the Democrats really want to run against him. Um, what, what the, but what the Democrats want to do, if Trump is going to be the candidate, then they're, they're, the way Biden has decided his strategy is going to work is he's just going to continually attack and go after the president and try to convince the American people that if if he gets if if Trump is elected, it'll be the end of democracy. Hot Air has a story today by Jazz Shaw. It's calling saying that the Biden doom and gloom tour is kicking off. Um, and this is this part is coming from the Associated Press. President Joe Bar Biden is starting the campaign year by evoking the Revolutionary War to mark the third anniversary of the of of the insurrection. Now, of course, the uh, Associated Press calls it the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and visiting the South Carolina church where a white gunman massacred black parishioners. Now, that's President Trump's coming to South Carolina on Monday to Emanuel um, Church, and what part of the reason is to point out that he's going to call Trump basically a racist. He's going to say that Trump's rhetoric, uh, the way Trump communicates, is 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 tied to a lot of this violence because it causes people to react in a violent way. Uh, he's, he's basically, as the AP says, seeking to present in the starkest possible terms an election he argues could determine the fate of American democracy. Uh, after Valley Forge, Biden will visit Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, the site of, the, of, a, of a certainly a racist white supremacist attack uh, in 2015, it's a surprising moment. In a surprising moment of honesty, the AP did say this. They described Biden's schedule as delving into some of the country's darkest moments, rather than an upbeat affirmation of his record. Okay, there's there's all you need to know. Buried in the middle of a lot of rhetoric in this news story is just a statement of truth that the Biden administration has decided he has no record to affirm. The American people are not buying Bidenomics. They're, they can see with their eyes that the border is a disaster. And so the only hope that a Biden campaign has is to paint President Trump in such a light that he becomes the threat to democracy. Uh, Biden plans to describe Donald Trump as a serious threat to the nation's founding principles. That'll be in, associated with this um, trip to, uh, to the site near Valley Forge, where George Washington, of course, spent and in, in the Continental Army spent a winter um, that, when they emerged from Valley Forge, it was the 
turning point of the Revolutionary War, uh, essentially. So, and and this is, he, he plans to do that. He plans to, his campaign manager summed up the strategy by saying that they're running a campaign like the fate of our democracy depends on it because it does. Could they possibly be any more dramatic? I mean, it, is it... Is there any way that they could overblow this any more than what they're doing? In reality, the people are attempting to toss a political opponent off the ballot and to lock him up in jail. They're doing a lot more to undermine democracy than Trump could ever manage. I mean, this is what we need to keep in mind. This is Jazz Shaw writing at Hot Air today, but he's exactly right. If you want to talk about under, the undermining of democracy, let's talk about the Justice Department being used as a weapon against a candidate that's running for president. You've got the Justice Department of a sitting president going after his main competitor, trying to lock him up over uh, in four separate cases that it, it, it's, it really, well, at least two cases that are coming from the Justice Department, one and then the other two cases, one from New York and one from Georgia. But these are hostile prosecutors that are of that are have said that their goal is to is to get is to get President Trump. That that's that's all it's about. And I can't think of anything that undermines our democracy any more than uh, than arms of the federal government or agents of progressive of pro progressives in the state government trying to eliminate a candidate without people having the opportunity to go to the polls and vote for him. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's the worst. All right. A um, couple other things here real quick before we talk to Lisa Van Riper. The a federal appeals court has basically ruled against the Biden administration on an abortion rule that is, when you step back and look at it, I mean, it, it's, it's really amazing. This is coming from Thomas Jipping today at the Daily Signal. President Joe Biden's latest abortion scheme is to turn a law that requires hospital emergency rooms to treat patients into what is a federal abortion mandate. Now, you just, I want you to sit here and think with me for just a minute. What does this mean? It means that there are people in the Justice Department, um, in, in the federal government at various levels, that are doing nothing more than scouring laws that are on the books and trying to find a way to twist those laws into and turn them into abortion laws, turn them into laws that promote abortion. The law is called Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. It was enacted in 1986, and here was the purpose. It was to combat patient, combat patient dumping in which hospitals refuse to treat or unnecessarily transfer indigent patients. So we had a problem, you know, hospitals that didn't want to take indigent care, didn't want to offer indigent care, would find a reason to say no to a patient or they would shift them to another hospital. Well, this law and from 1986 covers emergency rooms and hospitals that participate in Medicaid programs. It requires the screening of patients regardless of their ability to pay, to determine whether a patient has an emergency medical condition. And if he or she does, she must be offered either stabilizing treatment or transferred to another medical facility. So, stabilizing treatment. Keep that phrase in mind for a second. Because two weeks after the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, offered guidance and this is where they look at their own rules and tell you what to think about them, about enforcing the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act 
in pro-life states. So this was going to be applied to states that limit abortion. If a physician believes that abortion is the stabilizing treatment necessary to resolve an emergency medical condition, the agency said that the physician must provide that treatment in that situation, and it doesn't matter what state law says at that point. If there's a state law that says that the doctor can't provide the abortion, then the state law is preempted by this 1986 law that was designed to keep hospitals from transferring indigent patients. And so stabilizing treatment. Imagine in what world can you think that the phrase stabilizing treatment would be applied to a woman seeking an abortion, and that it would stabilize her condition if she went ahead and had the abortion. Well, that's, what, that's how far the government is willing to go in order to push the idea of abortion in states that have limited abortion. The state of Texas and two pro-life medical associations challenged this rule, arguing that it amounts to a substantive policy change and that, that, um, that the 1986 law doesn't support, and in any event requires a formal rulemaking process rather than a guidance letter. And the U.S. District Court, now the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, agreed. The Fifth Circuit's unanimous opinion. How many times has the Biden administration had a rule or guidance or a law struck down by the court in a unanimous decision, or at least in an overwhelming decision? I mean, it happens all the time because when, when you want to talk about, if, if, if you want to have a conversation about undermining the Constitution, going around the Constitution, going around the rule and the lawmaking process, the Biden administration has been chief among those who are doing that. And that is, that is undermining the Constitution. Uh, the Fifth Circuit's unanimous opinion Tuesday in Texas v. Becerra was written by Judge Kurt Engelhart, a Trump nominee, uh, appointee, rather, the appeals court made the three important made three important observations about the Emergency Treatment and Active Labor Act. First, the law does not mandate any specific type of medical treatment, let alone abortion. Second, the law does not clearly supersede the state's historic power to regulate both the medical profession and abortion. And some, Engelhart wrote, EMTALA does not govern the practice of medicine. In other words, it, it can direct physicians to stabilize patients in an emergency medical condition once one has been diagnosed, but the practice of medicine is to be governed by the states. And third, under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, emergency medical conditions include those that place the health of the woman or her unborn child in serious jeopardy. The Fifth Circuit said this approach imposes equal stabilization obligations. So... Bottom line, Fifth Circuit struck it down. It was a unanimous decision and another, um, basically, an, another push by the Biden administration to push through guidance uh, from, uh, from a regulatory standpoint to push abortion onto pro-life states. See, this wouldn't, this wouldn't really take effect or have any meaning in states that, are, that have liberal abortion laws. But it does have meaning in states, like South Carolina that has a six-week ban on abortion, like Texas that has a ban, like Oklahoma, like um, Alabama. This is a, a workaround, and it was an obvious workaround to the Fifth Circuit, so much so that the Fifth Circuit unanimously 
struck down this law, just a workaround for abortion. And the Biden administration got called on it. So this is good news. All right. Uh, we're going to wait here for just a second for Lisa Van Riper to give us a call. We're going to talk to her about the event this weekend in Columbia. Let me just remind you while we're waiting for her call that you can still get tickets to the event tonight. Seth Dillon is going to be the guest speaker at, at the South Carolina uh, Citizens for Life pro, a Proudly Pro-Life Dinner. So if you're looking for something to do this weekend, you haven't decided what you're going to do, I mean, you can still go to sclife.org. That's sclife.org and check out the opportunity to come to the dinner. It's at the Columbia Metropolitan Center. Uh, there's going to be plenty of room. I, I'm sure that the opportunities are still available for you to come and take part. And, of course, the rally tomorrow that begins at the State House at the uh, doesn't begin at the State House. It ends there on the uh, State House steps. But it starts at the Russell House at 11 o'clock, and then the rally begins at noon tomorrow. Um, we, we, I get it. The, the, it's, a, it's a wet weather forecast for tomorrow, and I know that's going to make a lot of people say, well, I'm just not going to be able to do this this year. But let me encourage you. Um, it's so important that we get out and let everybody know that South Carolina is a pro-life state. Uh, we're we're going to be starting the legislative session next week. And as lawmakers come back to Columbia, this is a great opportunity for them to see that there are a lot of people in South Carolina that want to protect life in the womb, that want to make sure that the law that we've passed, uh, the six-week ban, and then actually to go beyond that. I mean, there's, there's going to be a move if there are seats changed in the South Carolina Senate, which is going to have to happen if there's going to be any success in expanding to become a state that actually bans abortion. I think there's 11 states in the country right now that ban abortion. And then we've got states like South Carolina and Georgia that have six-week bans um, that uh, abortion is banned once a fetal heartbeat is detected. So it's, it's important for us to stay faithful. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow about the year of Jubilee. And just by way of a little bit of preview you know, Jubilee in the Bible, uh, according to Leviticus, is a reset. I mean, it's a return. It's, a, it's a oppor an opportunity for us to focus on the fact that God is sovereign and to go back and acknowledge that everything belongs to Him. And I think after Roe versus Wade, um, pro-life community needs this. I mean, we need to be a people that are saying, you know, it's time to refocus on God and what God is, is doing and going to do to protect life. Uh, we've had a lot of setbacks in some states where they've had on the ballot uh, different um, uh, initiatives that have expanded abortion rights, that have overruled uh, the state's laws that were put on the books to restrict abortion. And so it's, and it's because the argument from the pro-abortion activist from Planned Parenthood have they've changed the language over to the language of freedom? They're talking. They're not even using the term pro-choice anymore. They're using freedom of choice, and the, these are phrases that have been tested, and it's been proven that they're phrases that are appealing to women because women are being convinced that all of this restriction on abortion is nothing more than taking away their reproductive rights, and that language is resonating with people, and is. And as a pro-life community, we have to come back and focus again on what is in what is in the womb. 
I mean, it is a human being. We're not talking about curtailing the rights of women. We're talking about protecting the rights of the unborn. If we're going to talk about rights, let's talk about them, but let's make sure that we extend those rights to babies that are simply in the womb, the, 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 the pre-born, the unborn. And so um, that's, that's the kind of argument that I think the pro-life community is going to... The image of God argument, the idea that, that these babies are, born, are made in the image of God. All right, Lisa Van Riper is with us. We appreciate her being on the phone with us today. Good morning, Lisa. How are you? Good morning. Uh, good morning. Good. Are you having a good day so far? I am. I'm up making pecan pies for the raffle tonight, Dr. Beam. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought you were going to say pecan pancakes uh, because it's breakfast time, but you're already into pies for tonight, so you're ready I'm to already, go. I'm already into pies. Yeah, well, I got to roll out of here at 11 o'clock today, so that got to get my act together early. Well, listen, uh, talk to us a little bit. This is Lisa Van Riper, of course, is the president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. Talk to us a little bit about this event tonight. I know you're excited about having Seth Dillon uh, from Babylon B as the guest speaker. Why Seth Dillon? I, I don't know that um, it, immediately the connection becomes obvious to him and being pro-life. Now, he's very pro-life, but, but how did the connection come about with South Carolina Citizens for Life and Seth Dillon? Well, it goes with our theme of Jubilee this year. In Leviticus uh, 25.10, it says that you should uh, consecrate the 50th year. You should make it sacred unto the Lord, and you should free the captives and restore the land. And part of freeing our captives, we have taken that as our verse for this year, and part of freeing the captives is being a voice of Jubilee, speaking into the culture, the truth, with boldness and compassion, and I think in a way that can be heard. And a lot of people, because they have, uh, they don't know Scripture anymore, they they have, many of them are not in churches. They have been, as we know, educated into different kinds of worldviews. We, ha- we need all kinds of voices that are able to penetrate the culture. And Seth Dillon with Babylon B is one of those voices. He is a Christian. He is pro-life. But the way he speaks is usually with humor and satire, and he's reaching people with truth in a way that sometimes I think, Tony, they don't even know they're going to hear it because it comes to them in a little different way. So that was our choice of Seth Dillon, and I think we'll hear some of that tonight. You know, I was just uh, talking a little bit about a couple of stories I've seen in the last couple of weeks about how uh, the pro-choice, which they don't even call themselves that anymore, they call them pro-women's freedom or pro-women's rights, Mm -hmm. They've changed the language. They've, they've changed the way that they communicate. They're talking about reproductive rights. They're talking about uh, abortion as health care. And they've, they've done this through polling where they found out that women respond when you talk about abortion as a right, something that is a right that they have. So that's been effective for them in getting people's attention in your opinion, how does the pro-life community counter that argument? Well, I think we counter it first. I think we counter it first with knowing the facts ourselves, okay? We cannot speak to people about what we do not know, okay? Right, right. So we have to take time to educate ourselves on a couple of things. The biological humanity, 
of the unborn child, the risk of abortion to the mother. It's not it's not health care. It's never it's it's never health care to the child and it's rarely true health care to the woman, okay? That what are the reasons people are really having abortions and they're social and economic and what truly was the legal standard under Roe v. Wade. I mean, it was a fundamental right for one person to kill another human being to solve most of the time their social and economic problems. Right. This is horrendous. So we've got to settle down, and we've got to learn a few facts. We've got to learn a few facts, and we've got to learn what, um, that when Roe was overturned, it was only sent back to the people to, to make a decision. So now it's up to us what our standard of care for the unborn child will be in our society. And and that's a heavy, think about that. We can't blame and hide behind the robes of the Supreme Court anymore. We, we will be held personally responsible now for the choices we make as people before, with, in regards to the law. So I think right. we've got to, number one, do that. Then we have got to be willing to speak truth in a very compassionate way because people are not going to hear shrill voices but they will hear they will hear truth if it looks and is really motivated because I care about you and I care about society and I care about the unborn child people will respond to that because I think the United States is still at its core a compassionate country and the third thing I think we have to do is we have to we have to bind up the wounded, and that's part of the year of jubilee. Um, Roe v. Wade has not left us unscathed in this country. We've been left with a distorted mindset. We have been left with the walking wounded. We have been left with women who will never have children. We've been left with some women who have been buried, and we've been left with over 60 million children who will never see the sun. And so in that way, we have a lot of people before they, I believe, can hear the truth, Tony, because they've buried the pain. They are go we're going to have to begin to bind up the wounded of our society. And so... That's the vision South Carolina Citizens for Life has that we want to announce tonight. And we believe we believe we have a real opportunity here to we've left a we left a culture of life in nineteen seventy three. I think we have a chance to go home again to that culture. But uh, it's that's up a, to us and we are in a pivotal moment, just a pivotal moment. That's true. Uh, we have to, I think the emphasis when you're talking about rights uh, needs to be placed on the rights of the most vulnerable. And the rights of the most vulnerable, uh, vulnerable are the babies' lives that are at stake. And if we can communicate that, I think when the pro-life movement focuses on the life of the baby uh, and the health of the mother, and we can certainly do both of those things, when we focus on those two things, we can win the argument. Now, let me ask you a question about tonight. Uh, can people still text SC Life to 50457 or go to sclife.org and go ahead and get a ticket come tonight? Yes, yes, there are. There are. We have changed to a much larger venue. Right. 
And because of that, we have a few tickets left. And so you can go to sclife.org slash events, sclife.org slash events. You can get tickets. You can get individual tickets. You do not have to sign up to be a sponsor. The doors, um, the uh, convention center has now agreed to open the doors at 545 to go in and um, start start finding your seat and eating your salad and those kinds of things. And we're going to, uh, we'll have an invocation about 625 and Joyful Sound will actually do a 20-minute concert now during our dinner time. So um, we've changed the agenda just a bit to actually accommodate a little more dinner time for our guests so we can enjoy each other's company, enjoy a concert by Joyful Sound, and then move into our program where we'll not only hear Seth Dillon, but we're going to hear a poet from from Spartanburg who was runner-up in the National Endowment for the Arts who wrote a pro-life poem. We are going to hear Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, who has a marvelous story from Florence, South Carolina. Right. And we're going to have a few surprises during the evening, too. So I hope if, if you can come, uh, if you're there by uh, 6.30, uh, if you're running late, get there by 6.30. You will not have missed a thing. Your dinner will be there, and the program will get, get very much underway around 6.30. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about the rally tomorrow because uh, folks that want to come to the rally, um, of course, it's it's free. We just encourage everybody to come. Um, at 11 o'clock, we gather at the Russell House, and they march to the State House steps. Some, some people come straight to the State House steps. Uh, but the rally begins at noon, and uh, I know the weather is not the best, at least in the forecast for tomorrow, but there's a possibility the rain might move out before the rally begins. So um, I'm sure you want to encourage everybody to plan to come and to be counted for life. Absolutely. And there are many of those. There are many who come straight uh, to the State House. But if you want to walk, it's about five blocks with the group. You certainly can gather about 11 at the Russell House on Green Street at USC campus. But, but you can come about 1145 directly to the State House. I think it is prudent to bring an umbrella tomorrow <laughs> in case the rain doesn't move out. Right. Uh, we, will, we will have voices of jubilee, including your own Dr. Bean, tomorrow, and uh, we look forward to that. Um, also, if, if, if the rain is, you know, if the rain is bad, then we always adjust the speakers to, we all cut our remarks so that we honor those who have come to stand with us. So right. no need to worry that you're going to be left in the rain standing there for hours. We make those adjustments. We've even had the rally when there was a tornado warning. Okay, we I do not that. cancel the rally because guess what? The abortions are not canceled on Saturday at the abortion clinics right. in South Carolina. Yeah, weather doesn't affect that one bit. And it- weather does not affect this, and this is really a time to commemorate the lives that have been lost, the women who have been wounded, the society that is now scarred, and to encourage all of us to press on with truth, boldness, and compassion because the job has only been halfway done. Lisa, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Lisa Van Riper, president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. You're welcome. I look forward to seeing you tonight.
Uh, be careful with those pecan yes. pies on the way to. I will. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Um, yeah. Just once, one more time. You can text um, SC Life. It. Let's see if I put that back up here. I did not. Uh, that figures. What did I do with it? Well, I'll tell you what. Just go to sclife.org. Go and uh, backslash events, sclife.org backslash events, and you can get the information that you need to go ahead and plan to come tonight to the Proudly Pro-Life Dinner. Uh, I think doors open at 5. Uh, dinner's going to start around 6.30, and uh, it's going to be a great program. As you heard um, Lisa talking about Seth Dillon, I'm looking forward to hearing him. All right, uh, a couple other things before we wrap up the program this morning. Uh, we had dueling town halls on CNN last night between candidates Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And I just want to point out a couple, a couple of things. If you uh, probably didn't watch them because they were on CNN, uh, most conservatives don't run to CNN to get their information. But, um, the, you know, or maybe you just had something else and, and you've already made up your mind uh, who's going to be the nominee. I think a lot of people have done that. But I just wanted to give you some of the takeaways from those town halls from last night. Uh, Nikki Haley ended up having to continue to do damage control uh, for some of the remarks that she made in New Hampshire where she omitted slavery as a cause of civil war, and she got a lot of backlash from that. Last night she said, quote, if you grow up in South Carolina literally in second and third grade, you learn about slavery, Haley said. You grow up and you have, you know, I had black friends growing up. It's a very talked about thing. We have a big history in South Carolina when it comes to, you know, slavery, when it comes to all the things that happened with the Civil War, all of that. I was thinking past slavery and talking about the lesson that we would learn going forward, and I shouldn't have done that. So, again, she's taking some responsibility here uh, for leaving slavery out of the question, but, you know, when you've got something like this that's still being asked a week later, um, you can count that as having some kind of impact. I mean, this, this, is, this is not, this has affected, it, it has affected her campaign. It's not going to doom her campaign. It, I don't think it's going to change the numbers significantly. But the fact that she's having to uh, talk about it still is significant. Uh, quote, she said, it was not just about slavery that was talked about. It was more about racism that was talked about. We had black friends. We had white friends. But it was always a topic of conversations. And, of course, the mention of black friends drew some mockery online from DeSantis supporters. I mean, you know, there, there was a time um, in the country when we could talk about the fact that when, just like as I grew up in the South, of course, I had people who were my friends who were of different races. I mean, not just black, but uh, Hispanic. Um, I, I mean, different. There, there were people that I encountered where I, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily categorize people by their race when I talked about them as being friends. But there's, a, as growing up in the South in the era that I did, when we were accused of being racist, one of the first defenses was, well, wait a minute. I've got black friends. And, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have racist attitudes as well. And that's why Haley got a little bit of pushback on this. Um, I, I don't think, look, I don't think she deserves a bunch of pushback over this. Um, it, it, I, I think it was a mistake on her part 
to omit talking about slavery. I've talked about that on the program before, but I don't think it means that it, it, it's any indication that she doesn't understand the gravity of slavery or that slavery was part of the Civil War. Excuse me. All right. <clears throat> Last night, both DeSantis and Haley mostly went after Trump. But before I get into that, let me play something for you that I think is going to hurt Nikki Haley when it comes to um, Iowa. I, I have no idea why she would say something like this um, at when she's talking to people in New Hampshire, but she pretty much dissed Iowa voters and said that New Hampshire voters would correct anything that Iowa voters did, and then that South Carolina would bring it home. I mean, what in the world? How, does and, and this sounded like something maybe that she had rehearsed. This didn't sound like an off-the-cuff comment, but something that she had planned to say. But here's what it sounded like, if I can get it to work. Of course, this always happens. Oh, I, I trust you. I trust every single one of you. You know how to do this. You know Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. You know that you continue to go. There's a big line for her. She's talking to people in New Hampshire. You can correct what happens in Iowa. And then my sweet state of South Carolina brings it home. That's what we do. That's what we do. Okay, just for a minute, think with me like an Iowan, okay? Imagine that you're in Iowa and you're watching this. And she basically says, well, whatever they do over in Iowa, don't worry about that. Because you, here in New Hampshire, you, the educated, you folks are the one. Now, she didn't say that, but that's the way it comes across. It comes across as the, that the New Hampshire voters are much more sophisticated. Uh, what if Nikki Haley does really well in Iowa? Well, then what is that going to mean for the New Hampshire voters? Does that mean they're supposed to correct that and to, to elevate Ron DeSantis over her? I mean, I just don't think she thought this through. Um, and so that's, that's been, in the last 24 hours, kind of a, a, a bugaboo for the Haley campaign again. Um, you know, you could say, whoops, she does it again. I mean, this is, uh, you know, after the non-slavery comment about the Civil War, now she appears to be insulting Iowa voters. Not something you want to do when they're getting ready to caucus, and they're going to have an opportunity to hear that, of course. Um, the Sanders and Haley last night mostly went after Trump. They took some jabs at each other. Haley noted that she polls better than DeSantis in hypothetical matchups with President Biden. Uh, DeSantis started a segment with a, with a gag alluding to Haley's recent flub of an Iowa, Iowa basketball star's name. And uh, that was the CNN moderator that was talking to DeSantis was Caitlin Collins. Um, and he gave her a jersey saying, I heard the other day someone say that Caitlin Collins had some basketball skills. So anyway, um, the, the, they started out pretty much soft, lobbing softballs at each other, but then they focused most of their attacks on Trump. DeSantis' strategy is always hinged on peeling away Trump voters, even as he defends himself on a lot of different fronts. He took sharp aim at Trump's record, saying the former president didn't stop at an invasion at the U.S. didn't stop an invasion at the U.S. border, but had dismantled the and 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 hadn't dismantled the bureaucracy that is making all of that possible. 
this is all according to the Washington Post. This is their recap of what happened. Ask about his and other GOP candidates calling an end to birthright citizenship for children of undocumented immigrants born on U.S. soil, which would certainly face legal challenges. DeSantis made a point to note that Trump had campaigned on the idea and didn't sign an executive order attempting to enact it. Um, and, and then the question, do you think Donald Trump is not pro-life? Collins asked after DeSantis assailed Trump's criticism of state-level six-week abortion bans. DeSantis said, of course not. Haley, meanwhile, was asked how she planned to overtake Trump. She reiterated her usual criticism that, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him, and the moderator followed up, is it rightly or wrongly? Is he the one that causes the chaos, or is, it just, is he an unwitting victim? And Haley said, it's both. Uh, some of the charges against him are political, but she also said that Trump has, has been his own worst enemy and criticized his praise for certain dictators. So both DeSantis and Haley wasting their time, in my opinion, going after Trump. I mean, it, 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 look, Trump is going to win Iowa. Trump is likely going to win New Hampshire. He will win South Carolina going away. And from there, I, I think he cruises to the nomination. I mean, that's just the nature of the political environment that we're in right now. He is the overwhelming favorite of Republicans uh, to be the nominee. And these charges against him are not going to change anybody's mind. I mean, if the charges against him at the federal level and the state level are not changing anybody's mind, why does anybody think that any kind of accusations or charges coming from these candidates is going to change people's minds at this point? Um, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, all right, there were groans over Haley saying New Hampshire will correct Iowa. We, we talked about that. Uh, DeSantis was pressed on January 6th and same-sex marriage. With the third anniversary of January 6th um, coming up, one voter asked DeSantis for his definition of patriotism and if the January 6th insurrectionists displayed it, as some had claimed. DeSantis said, of course not, adding that was not a good day for the country, but he also reiterated his frequent argument that Democrats and the media have overblown the events of that day. Look, it's, it's more than... And the, those events of the day being overblown. It's the fact that a lot of information about those events, that event, was held back for a long time, and a lot of information about that event was distorted, especially by the, quote, January 6th committee. And American people, the American people know that. I mean, they could tell that the whole January 6th committee thing was a television-produced show that had nothing to do with trying to get to the bottom of, the, of, of what happened or to reveal any facts. Um, so DeSantis talked about marriage. Uh, Collins brought that up, same-sex marriage. Uh, he said, um, let's see, what the, what's the question? She noted that DeSantis had previously said marriage is between a man and a woman and asked if he still feels that way. He said, quote, that's just what marriage is with the church, and I respect the Supreme Court's decision, so we've abided by that in Florida. The Supreme Court, of course, legalized same-sex marriage. DeSantis went on to warn against people who try to wield power against our religious institutions and promise to protect them. So he couched this um, question of same-sex marriage into the uh, context of religious liberty and the fact that a lot of Christians come under fire because they still believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. So 
I'm, I'm personally thankful that DeSantis sees that and has made a commitment that he would protect religious liberty for people who continue to uphold a biblical understanding of marriage. Um, then, of course, you had the school shooting that was hanging over the evening. Both candidates were asked about gun violence in the wake of a deadly school shooting that unfolded Thursday in Iowa, with one voter asking DeSantis how he would address the issue without taking away any gun rights. Collins pressed DeSantis on whether he supports an effort to eliminate a three-day waiting period to buy rifles and shotguns in Florida, and DeSantis said he supported instant checks on buyers. He said, he said I think that it should be instant, not three days. Haley focused on mental health as a driver of such shootings. Just to be clear, gun restrictions themselves, do you favor any additional gun restrictions or not? She was asked, we would go and take away a certain kind of gun today, and that would make you feel better today. Uh, she said, we could go, she, and that would make you feel better today, but a week from now, there'd be another shooting. Um, I, I think that's a, not a bad way to answer that. It's not about the gun. Uh, Haley's basically saying, no matter what type of gun that you try to ban, then people who want to get a hold of guns to do violence are always going to be able to do that, and therefore the bans for law-abiding citizens don't work. Now, some interesting news coming out, and I'm not going to get into it in depth today. Well, there'll be more information hopefully by Monday because this shooting in Iowa is 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 fresh. But there, if if you look at the social media page of the shooter, this looks like. Um, it, there's a possibility that this is an LGBTQ um, person who was involved in this shooting. We don't know if there's any connection yet to the fact that they were LGBTQ or that they at least have that information on their social media site as to whether that motivated them in any way. That's why before it, anything else, I mean, I'm telling you what's available now. What's available now is a social media site that would seem to connect the person to the LGBTQ plus community. There's, stu there's stuff on there about um, transgender kids. Um, but, and, and of course, TikTok took that down within a short period of time after the shooting. Uh, but there, there will be more information come out about this, and, and we'll talk it, about it and bring it to you when we know things, that if there was any direct connection or if, look, bottom line, this was very much likely, as in all of these, or at least the vast majority of these shootings, a mentally challenged, mentally deranged person who, for whatever reason, decided to express uh, their anger or hatred or their the lack of the mental ability to restrain themselves. They decided to express it through violence. And, you know, as we, as we find out more, we'll bring more information to you. All right. I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you've enjoyed the program today. It's been uh, fun uh, doing the program with you. Thanks again to Lisa Van Riper for joining us. And if you have an opportunity, we do hope you'll come to the event tonight to hear Seth Dillon uh, from the Babylon Bee and then join us for the March and Rally for Life tomorrow. In Columbia, starts at 11 o'clock, wraps up, or it starts actually officially at noon on the State House steps, and I hope to see many of you there. Have a great weekend. God bless you. I'll see you Monday morning at 730.